Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Gann, and this is Health Now, WebMD's podcast about all things health and wellness. Thanks for joining us this week. We've got a great show for you. Everyone wants to feel heard and understood, to be listened to without judgment and without the person you're talking to telling you what you should do, for someone to really get you. That's empathy, and it lets someone feel what you're feeling, almost like they're reading your mind, but in a good way. Our next guest is an empathy expert. She's Dr. Helen Reese, a psychiatrist and medical educator at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Reese is also the founder of Empathetics, Inc., which provides empathy training for medical professionals. In her book, The Empathy Effect, she shows us how to build our empathy skills and how that effort can reap big rewards. Dr. Reese talked about it with Dr. Arafa Kassaboy, Senior Medical Director at WebMD. Well, let's start with the basics. Could you go into what exactly empathy is and how it's different from sympathy or pity or just being nice? Empathy is more than one thing. It is um, our ability to perceive the emotions and thoughts of others, to process those, and then that motivates a response. And it differs from sympathy um, in that empathy is really feeling with other people because we actually catch one another's emotions if we're paying attention, where sympathy is really feeling bad for people and um, maybe taking pity on them. Being nice can just be very superficial, like being polite and saying the right thing. But I think people feel when they are being empathized with because they actually feel like they resonate with the other person. Why is empathy especially important now? Well, empathy is getting a a tremendous amount of attention in just about every sector that you can think of. And of course, my background is in healthcare. I think empathy is really important now because patients are speaking up, students are speaking up, you know, employees are speaking up, that they really want a a more connected experience. What was it about empathy that brought you to that field originally? How did you go about deciding this is what you wanted to focus on in your work? When I was starting to hear a lot about an empathy deficit in healthcare overall, I realized that much of what I had learned as a psychiatrist um, and the ability to really perceive other people's emotions and, and to know what they are and knowing how to respond was uh, a component of medical training that really was missing. And so my quest on the empathy journey was to find out whether empathy could be taught, because in the past, it really was considered something you either had or you didn't. So if you're a bit snarky or cynical by nature, you're saying you could learn how to be empathetic. Is it along the lines of fake it till you make it? Or how do you teach it to be a genuine empathetic experience? I have seen some doctors who would say they're not empathetic by connecting with people in these meaningful ways. They start to realize that something changes in in the relationship. Something changes in the dialogue when they say something caring. And, and by experiencing that response from the patient, 
they actually resonate better. So by, quote, faking it, like just sort of saying the words, I've seen people actually become much more connected with others. Oh, that's good to hear. What if you're the person that's burned out and you're exhausted? Someone in our audience might be like, I just don't have it in me to be empathetic. What do you say to that person? I think just self-awareness, like taking your own pulse and realizing my empathy, you know, quotient is really low right now. Part of what we train um, at Empathetics is to really tune into what restores your uh, resilience. You know, is, do you just sometimes need to take a nap? <laughs> do you need to get more sleep? Do you need to get more exercise? Um, do, do you need to make getting some healthy food a priority? So it's recognizing when you're getting there. But if you really don't have it, it's probably better not to rush through or, or to say something in a, you know, in an aggravated or a irritated way and just kind of admit it like this. It'd be better if we resume this conversation, you know, another time. And I, and this applies not just in healthcare, but really to any relationship. When you don't have it, it's better to, you know, find a better time. When you're in a difficult conversation and you're trying to use your tools of empathy and you're not getting what you need back in return, what other advice do you have for those kinds of situations? That situation can happen a lot when one person is ready to listen and the other person is still either very angry or annoyed or frustrated. And I call that being in the red zone. And if somebody is in the red zone where they're, they're just very defensive, they're not, you know, responding to any empathy or any, you know, curiosity, but they just want to dig in. Um, the first thing is just to try to listen to see if venting will kind of move the person from a high intensity feeling or emotion to a lower. But if you're not getting anywhere, it's very difficult to accomplish anything when when people are in the red zone. And so I recommend saying, I don't think we can have a productive conversation when we're both this upset. Could we just agree to come back to this in a couple of hours or maybe tomorrow when we're less upset? Because once people get emotionally hijacked, and by that I mean that the threat sensor in the brain called the amygdala is just firing away, not much activity is happening in the forebrain, like where we plan and reason and we, you know, are able to prioritize um, things. So it's better just to realize that when, when we're in a hijacked state or if the person we're talking to is, it's just not possible to have a productive outcome at that time. I think it's uh, it's a great point that sometimes the conversation just needs to stop. Yes, but what did you like? Could we come back to this when we're both less upset? This is so applicable to every facet of life. I really appreciate the time you've taken to share that with all of us. Well, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, thank you for all your curiosity about this important topic. A lot of people go to some serious lengths to make their workout routines more efficient and effective, whether it's buying the best shoes or clothes, eating protein bars or gel packs for the right fuel, or making a killer playlist. 
but a studio in New York City is putting a new fitness concept to the test, keeping the thermostat at a chilly temperature, around 50 degrees. It's called burn, B-R-R-R-N, as in burr, it's cold in this gym. Does the temperature really make a difference when it comes to burning calories and getting fit? Dr. John White, WebMD's chief medical officer, talked with the gym's founders about their idea. Here's their conversation. My guests today are Jimmy Martin and Johnny Adamick, who have started a gym called Burn, where everyone exercises when it's downright cold inside. Thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Our pleasure. Hey, thanks, John. Now, how did you come up with this idea? It's, it's not intuitive. After all, we're not used to going to the gym all layered up. Did you grow up in Alaska, or maybe you guys were big-time skiers or snowboarders? Uh, how, how'd you come up with it? Well, very, very close. Uh, I mean, the both. For, this is Jimmy, by the way. Uh, our, our, you know, the cooler months have been a backdrop to both my life and Johnny's life. I'm a native of Pennsylvania, and, and Johnny's a native of Wisconsin. Uh, but we've both been in the city for about 10 years. Uh, I mean, this idea really came out of just curiosity. In 2013, I was training a private client in the summer uh, summertime, and it was hotter in the studio than it was outside. And we were just talking about how during the fall, winter months, she not only was her fittest, um, worked out her best, but also just felt better. And those three things just really you know, piqued my curiosity. So later that night, I went home on Google to see if there was such a thing as a cool temperature workout studio. And after hours of trying to find something, I couldn't find anything other than just research that really pointed to the benefits of improving performance in cooler temperatures, um, burning more calories in cooler temperatures, acclimating better uh, to, to cooler to cold by being in cool more often. And that really got the spark uh, in me to think about this as potentially the next iteration of, of fitness. Give us the cold, hard facts. What's the science that suggests cold is better than warm when it comes to working out? Yeah, this is, this is Johnny. Um, so, so, so my background is in, in public health, and Jimmy actually pitched me this, this concept in a coffee shop. And, you know, it was interesting because I, I grew up in Wisconsin, but I had never really associated cold with fitness. Having had shoveled snow, as a kid growing up, I realized, oh, yeah, I used to, like, build a sweat. And so digging deep into the public health literature, it's, it's, there, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that shows that you actually can, you know, burn more calories, you burn fat, you can acclimate, you trigger this thing called brown adipose tissue. But above all, what's the best way to stay warm in cooler temperatures you move? So cold is the best environment to stimulate and nudge movement. It's the best environment to exercise in. We do know that cold acts as a stressor, and as you said, it probably increases our energy expenditure, and we believe that the cold allows our body to regulate its temperature a little better. But have you found that you can exercise longer when you're in a cold temperature and, and maybe even burn more calories since your body has to use thermogenesis, so to speak, to get you at that right temperature. Yeah, and th this is Johnny again. One of, the, one of the key studies that we have used kind of as, as our foundation is one on the impact of weather on marathon running. It's from 2006, and it's from the environment. It, it, it's from the Army's Environmental Medicine Division, and it's a great study because they controlled for like the top 10 marathons, Boston, New York, Vancouver, um, and it also goes back, you know, quite deep 30 years of data. 
and each year they took, they controlled for the first and the 25th and the 50th and the 100th and the 300th place. And they look at time and temperature. It was called a wet bulb theory. But they found that about 41 degrees was the best temperature to run a marathon in. And with each degree increase, um, there also was an increase in your time. We just kind of took that and started to just kind of mesh and, 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 and think on that. And, and just and just to add to one point, um, you know, my background, I was a, a former Division One wrestler. So so my whole life uh, has been competing in the heat, <laughs> putting a rubber suit on, cutting weight. Uh, so to, so nobody hates it more than I do. Um, and, and, and more than anything, uh, I have this misconception about, uh, you know, this idea that excessive sweating was a byproduct of a great workout experience. And it wasn't until I realized that, oh, I used to run outside in the winter time and just felt like reinvigorated. Uh, whereas when I was inside with a rubber suit on cutting weight, I was like looking at the end of the workout at the very beginning. And more than anything with, with burn, um, it's fun to watch people dress like it's like it's 10 degrees outside as they walk into our studio. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, I don't need as many layers as I need. My body is going to work efficiently just to stay at 98.6. But what do you say to the folks who argue this is just the latest fad? Is it just a fad? We're addicted to heat the same way that we're addicted to calories. And the reason for this is because of this thing called winter. And winter has been such a strong force on us as, as humans, as homo sapiens for millennia, that we've done everything we can to engineer it out of our lives. So we, we, we have a central food system. We have central heating. Um, so much so that we try to seek living in a state of constant comfort. And the ramifications of this are we're in the midst of an, an obesity epidemic um, that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to fight right now. And we truly feel that temperature dropping at cooler temperatures is one of the many ways to just, to, to just be more active, to be happier. You referenced a little earlier when, when people first come to the gym. What, what is the typical reaction from clients? I think what we're trying to do is, is – uh, recalibrate people's perception of what it means to, to, to be what we call cool, not cold. Uh, the way that we did this, you know, describe our studio is like a crisp fall morning, not a dark wintry night. And based off the science of what's called mild cold stress, which is exposure to cooler temperatures between 40 and 64 degrees, we found over time that the sweet, sweet spot was 50 degrees. Um, and when people walk in, they're amazed how this temperature puts like a superhero cape on their back. Uh, it, we actually make it harder for ourselves um, as a brand because we are, you know, giving people so much support through that environment for them to work out harder for longer. Whereas if the temperature was ambient or hot, it's debilitating right from the start. So people are perceiving like they that they're working harder than what they really are. Um, John, I think what, what's the term volitional fatigue? Or yeah, that's that's the. Yeah, it's called blissful fatigue. I mean, that's kind of the, the 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 genesis is that you know we heat up so much the first few minutes of exercise, and I don't think people quite yet, and and, and neither had we until we really started to investigate this and, and and learn for ourselves. But the sweat that happens within the first few minutes in in that workout space is a byproduct of just your body heating up. It has nothing to do with the efficacy of your workout. Um, you know, the, the army knows this especially, and there's, there's a great study. It's from 2017. It just kind of synthesizes the past, you know, all, all the stuff that, all the stuff that we've done on workout performance, um, in, in the literature. And then like, and it basically just says that essentially what, what I'm just saying, the body heats up to 102, 103, 104, but if you drop the temperature, your body can actually dump heat 
more effectively so that you don't have that competing cardiovascular demand on, on your system, which is also, by the way, trying to exercise. And as I said, I did have an opportunity to come to the gym and experience a workout. And as you said, uh, I did come all layered up. I imagine it would be as if I were outside in a snowstorm, which obviously it isn't. And I was impressed with this really almost in a way feeling invigorated by the cold, despite a very intense uh, workout, especially the one that I chose, a, a cardiovascular workout with a lot of sliding, uh, as well as some stretching. So it, it really was a different perspective that one had to bring about the benefit of, of cold in the context of working out is, is when you said people just have this sense that you need to sweat. And of course, one does sweat in the gym, even if it's cold, but it, it's a different perspective you bring. Should we be working out in the cold during the winter months? Should we just go outside? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, I think any form of, of physical activity, if you can fit into your life, you win, you know. And so burn is just one shop that, that we hope that you, 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 you frequent. Um, I think what's really great about what we're doing is that we're, we're harnessing um, and we're packaging all the, all the essence of cold without all the other stuff that kind of makes cold miserable. So, you know, wind chill yeah. and, and, and precipitation. The one thing that was that's, that's often overlooked when it comes to working out in in cooler temperatures, um, specifically in the winter time, is humidity. And I know some people who have run outside, like, like they go outside for a run and they're like, oh, my throat, it feels like my throat's burning. Uh, it's because of the humidity. And when we were engineering our space, uh, we were very mindful of that. And we wanted to have a certain uh, hum uh, relative humidity range that was good for respiration. I mean, my, my, you know, we consulted with a respiratory therapist over the ideal range that was, that was good for, uh, you know, working out. And so it's, Interesting is in the heat, high humidity feels sticky and gross, but, but in cooler temperatures, high humidity is great because in terms of respiration, our, our lungs you know, love moisture. Um, so, so that was one thing that was often overlooked that we really took seriously with, with engineering our space. I, I want to thank you, Johnny and Jimmy, for taking the time today. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, thank Dr. Droid. Are you going out for dinner tonight? Maybe you're someone who glances at the health inspection score posted on the wall of a restaurant to gauge how clean the place is. And while that's a good indicator, there are tons of things that health inspectors don't check. And some of them can be really, really nasty. Take menus, for example. Everybody touches them, but does anybody clean them? Often the answer is no, and that may just give them the dubious honor of being the dirtiest things on site. Studies found traces of bad bacteria like E. coli and S. aureus, or staphylococcus, on them. They pick it up as we pass them from hand to hand. Plastic menus are worse because they don't absorb water, so it hangs around until it evaporates. That gives bacteria time to grow. So wash your hands after you touch the menu, especially before you eat something like finger food or share dishes with others. Those touch screens at fast food joints may speed up your order, but they can get you sick quicker too. Researchers found traces of staph and E. fecalis on screens, both of which can cause infections. If you don't have sanitizer on hand, you're better off standing in line and ordering at the counter. If you do have hand sanitizer, you might want to use it on the condiment bottles and salt and pepper shakers on your table. Because they get used time after time and rarely wiped down, they can be home to E. coli and coliform bacteria. And while you're at it, you may as well give the table a swipe too. Sure, they get cleaned, but the cloths often have bacteria on them. 
If you're in a self-service place, be wary. Buffets and salad bars can serve up germs because people breathe on the food or touch the utensils. To keep yourself safe, make sure cooked meat is served hot under heat lamps or on a heated surface, and check that cold cuts and veggies are on ice. Look over the foods to make sure they're fresh. And when you go back for seconds, get a new plate and new utensils. Use a different serving utensil for each item. And wait until you get to the table to eat anything. If you're sick, ask someone else to fill your plate. And skip the line if there's no sneeze guard, that plastic barrier between the food and people. But if you actually do have to sneeze while you're in line, don't do it on the sneeze guard. Step away from the food. And if you can, ditch the cafeteria tray and carry the plate to the table yourself. One study found the trays had more bacteria than bathrooms and gym mats. Even though they look bright and festive, those lemon wedges on your water or tea glass can be teeming with germs. In tests, 75% of them had organisms on them, some as many as 25 different types. The acid in your stomach can zap most of them, but it might be harder if you have diabetes, kidney failure, or you're on chemotherapy. No matter your health status, it's a good idea to see if the servers use gloves or tongs when they garnish your drink. Finally, if you're wondering how clean that ice in your drink really is, there's a little bit of good news for you. While studies did find germs in bar and restaurant ice makers, they weren't at high enough levels to make you sick. Now, if you aren't too grossed out yet, you can check the show notes to learn more about where germs can hide in public places. Okay, here's our tweak of the week. Skip the afternoon coffee break and take the stairs. It seems the benefits of climbing steps go beyond just burning calories. According to researchers at the University of Georgia, walking up and down stairs for 10 minutes at a low to moderate intensity can make you more energized and alert than half a cup of coffee. All those extra steps are just a bonus. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you join us next time.